five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Don't Let Go Canada Coalition. For 60 years, Canada has been a space leader. We help build the International Space Station and land astronauts on the moon. Back on Earth, we leverage our space capabilities every day to push boundaries in medicine, communications, and environmental monitoring. The clear vision and commitment of previous governments helped drive this forward, but now our country faces a decision point and we need to act. Please visit don'tletgocanada.ca and join the campaign to help us keep innovation, jobs, and our best and brightest in Canada. The universe needs more Canada. Don't let go, Canada. My guest this week is Professor Gordon Ozinski, Director of the Center for Planetary Science and Exploration at Western University. Today we'll be talking about water on Mars and the history of water discoveries on the Red Planet. As well, is there liquid water on Mars today? It's a question that we haven't decided with any certainty, even though we found evidence that suggests water flowed in the past on Mars. Also, the Martian polar caps contain water ice. However, unlike Earth's polar caps, the Martian polar caps are a combination of water ice and carbon dioxide ice. Recently, though, there was news that there may be a lake under the surface of the Martian south polar cap. Is this really the case? And what are the implications for human exploration? Should it be verified that there's liquid water on Mars today? Welcome, Gordon, to the Space Q podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be on. Mars is tantalizingly close, yet still out of reach for human explorers for at least another decade, it seems. The red planet has fascinated us for hundreds of years, if not millennia. Both the U.S. and the then Soviet Union orbited spacecraft around Mars for the first time in May 1971. In the 47 years since then, our knowledge of the planet has increased exponentially, as has the questions we're looking to get answered. Could you set the stage of where we are today with respect to water on Mars by very briefly highlighting the chronology of the important discoveries? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, you set the scene very well there. Um, it's It's been almost five decades that we've been having missions around Mars and receiving data from the red planet. And, you know, I think initially, um, you know, many of us weren't around at that time, but in the early 1970s, um, of course, the first pictures sent back were of uh, a very moon-like planet. And, you know, one, one can just detect the uh, the sense of disappointment, I think, was in uh, mission control rooms at that time. Um, but then it didn't take very long until uh, the later Mariner missions and Viking missions to come along that, you know, we started to to see features on the surface of Mars that really look like features and landforms we see on Earth. And so, you know, the early evidence um, and the, the early ideas and data that got people thinking that there was once more water on Mars 
um, really came from landforms. In addition, of course, there are even older astronomical evidence for what looked to be, you know, ice caps on the north and south polar regions. Um, but yeah, early evidence in the form of channels, um, these big outflow channels, and later what we call kind of small valley networks. Um, of course, there's no water in them today, but when you compare them to similar landforms on Earth, you can make the use comparative planetology uh, to make the inference that water once flowed across the surface of the planet and potentially accumulated in lakes. And then, of course, a very contentious topic that seems to, you know, wax and wane. Uh, the pendulum swings from oceans to no oceans, back to oceans, and then kind of back to no oceans again. And uh, I think right now we're perhaps in the middle where there's some, you know, there's some quite interesting evidence that there was at least uh, short-lived oceans in the northern plains of Mars. Now, with respect to the orbiters that we've sent to Mars, which was the first orbiter that really gave us that those clues that was, yeah, you know, just everybody just took their breath and went, wow, this is not what we were thinking and look at what we're seeing. The uh, later Mariner missions and then uh, Viking in particular, the Viking orbiters really sent back, uh, you know, the first global imagery of Mars. And it was those missions that, albeit coarse imagery, really uh, showed us that there was landform evidence uh, for, you know, the existence of past uh, water on Mars. You've done a lot of research in Canada's high Arctic, including at the Houghton Crater, which is considered a moon and Mars analog. How does that work relate to exploring Mars and the moon and the search for water? Yes, yeah, so you know the, the Houghton Crater is a really unique environment. Um, it's the only meteorite impact crater we know of in a polar desert, and so uh, you not only have the impact cratering process, which of course is not so common uh, on Earth, but is uh, you know we have a vast impact cratering record on Mars, um, but all of Devon Island, which is you know an area pretty much the same size as Nova Scotia, is essentially a an analog environment. Um, it's, it is a polar desert environment, very little uh, liquid water for very short periods of time, uh, albeit, you know, not as extreme as Mars. And so we, again, over the past, you know, couple of decades, myself and, you know, various other researchers from around the world have been doing work on Devon Island, uh, again, to uh, in this area of, you know, what we would call comparative planetology. So, you know, we see a landform on Mars that on Earth, um, we try to, of course, on Earth, we can do the ground truthing, we can collect samples, collect all sorts of data sets that we just can't do on Mars. And so if we can build up a better picture of, for example, how gullies form on Earth and compare them to uh, the similar landforms on Mars, we can hopefully make a, you know, a more um, uh, justified and uh, better judgment of how these landforms form uh, on the surface of Mars. Now, recently, uh, a research team based out of Italy reported that it had discovered what appears to be a lake or a reservoir of water one and a half kilometers below the surface at the Martian South Polar Cap. The data they used was from the European Space Agency's Mars Express Orbiter, specifically the Mars Advanced Radar for Subsurface and Ionosphere Sounding Instrument, or MARSIS. Let's put, that, put this discovery into context. What is it they claim to have discovered and why is it important? 
Yes, you know, this was a, a really, well, it hit the headlines uh, a couple of months ago now. And uh, for the first time, the the that mission team have proposed that they've discovered, you know, liquid water at the present day. Um, again, a lot of the evidence we've been talking about uh, so far in this podcast is um, evidence for past water. You know, uh, going back to the evidence uh, that I talked about earlier in the form of potential valley networks and oceans and lakes, a lot of this evidence is in the really ancient terrains. And so um, dating back, you know, two, three, four billion years ago, what the Mars' team have proposed is that at the present day, there is um, potentially a, a lake around 20 kilometers or so across kind of at the boundary or at the base of the uh, the polar ice caps. And so, you know, that is the, we've had some circumstantial evidence for, um, in the form of these uh, kind of gullies forming at the present day, but they've never been, you know, captured and we've never seen any liquid flowing. Um, we, of course, know there's ice at the surface at the present day. But, so this is really the first uh, major recent discovery that uh, has suggested that, you know, on Mars at the present day, albeit at a considerable depth beneath the, the ice cap, there is liquid water. Now, I'm going to get back to that in a second, but you brought something up which I thought was quite interesting, and, and that's the gullies. Um, you know, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and I know at Western University you have a, a team that's working with the high-rise camera. Um, have we received enough data from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to date to say whether or not there has been or in recent times some uh, evidence of running water in in the gullies you know it's interesting um, you know it's well 2000 now when uh, Mike Malin and Edget uh, published the paper in science you know first documenting the presence of gullies on Mars and proposing that they were carved by liquid water and since then there's been a multitude of hypotheses proposed for how these gullies form and I mean, I think at the present day, we're actually almost further apart as a community than uh, perhaps, you know, almost 20 years ago now. Um, there's a lot of ideas out there that um, you can form gullies by, you know, a dry process. So basically, um, material uh, falling down a slope and carving uh, channels on its own without the need for liquid water. Um, there is a big part of the community, and I think I would fall in that group that does think that you can really only form some of the big gully landforms um, with running liquid. And, you know, the most likely culprit is H2O and not uh, CO2. Yeah, so there's been various ideas, uh, snow melt, uh, melting of ground ice. One of the original ideas was aquifers that are breaching the surface. Of course, that contradicts a little bit with the formation of uh, gullies at the present day, which is what the high-rise team have been focusing on. So they've been imaging, you know, the same gully uh, month after month, year after year. And we have seen, you know, evidence for recent modification of uh, some gullies. So that, you know, raises the question how that can be done on Mars at the present day where water is unstable. Um, 
so some would you know invoke dry processes but again and this actually has a you know a link back to the Marsis discoveries that we have to remember that you know that's only for pure water um, if we have salty brines that is what keeps subglacial lakes on Mars stable sorry on earth uh, stable down to you know minus 10 15 degrees Celsius this could be what is uh, allowing you know water to flow albeit very for short periods of time on the surface of Mars today. So going back to that, the discovery by the Italian researchers, um, can the evidence they've provided be considered proof that there is actually uh, liquid water on Mars today, or is it just still too circumstantial? Yeah, well, yeah. You you ask scientists, a uh, hundred scientists, uh, what proof means, and you probably get a hundred different answers. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you know, we don't have a sample in hand that you know would probably convince most people. Um, so you know, this is radar evidence from you know a kilometer and a half below the Martian surface. Um, the the detections are hard to explain. Um, uh, in any other way, um, you know, but even in their paper, they suggest, you know, it could be more of a sludge than, let's say, a lake. Um, but if those uh, radiograms are, are, are correct and to be believed and have been interpreted correctly, you know, there is there are contrasting materials uh, down there in that particular region. Um, but, you know, we don't have, you know, a drill core that has accessed that or and it's not on the surface uh, so that we can image it. And so, um, you know, um, I think, you know, right around even when the paper came out, there were others um, that have speculated that, uh, you know, uh, that this, this wasn't um, liquid water. Um, and, you know, in particular, there is another radar instrument on Mars, the Sherad instrument on the, on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that you mentioned already. And, you know, it hasn't seen um, evidence for water at that particular location. And the, the Marsis instrument, uh, how deep uh, can it uh, take radar images from below the surface? Was this quite deep for it or...? Uh, so, you know, Marsis can actually see, it has a longer wavelength than Sherad, and so, you know, it, it's the instrument that was used to image the base of the north and south polar caps, and so, you know, three, four, five kilometers is well within its uh, reach. Um, uh, but with that comes lower resolution, and so I know I think that's uh, one of the things that needs to be followed up, and, you know, people have already called for radars with a higher resolution to go back to, to look at this discovery. Um, because, it, you know, it's a very coarse resolution they have uh, over this, what is quite a small area, um, you know, 20 kilometers or so across. So, so that brings up uh, my next question is, uh, can they replicate the results or do we actually need to uh, get another instrument there that's of, uh, like you say, better quality, uh, higher resolution to, 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 to really confirm something like this? I mean, I think both definitely needs to be done. Um, I haven't, you know, read or seen of much or any talk of uh, going back with a, a dedicated campaign in this area by the Marsis instrument. Um, you know, Marsis is on a, a spacecraft, Mars Express, that is 15 years old now. Um, and so I don't know whether this would be feasible. And, you know, they 
they were only able to get this, uh, you know, high quality data by a very dedicated campaign over a very small region, which is very rarely done. And so, um, you know, it would be nice to think that uh, the same team could go back and, you know, try to reproduce the results. You know, that's one of the fundamentals of the scientific method is whether you can reproduce something. Um, and again, I also don't know if uh, if the Sharad team have any uh, plans to go, you know, with a, a more dedicated uh, campaign in this area. Now, Let's say for the sake of argument that it was liquid water or maybe sludge. Um, uh, is there the possibility that there could be some type of microbial life in this area? I mean, yeah, obviously the, the discovery or the potential discovery opens the door to that. And, you know, I would say that personally, you know, if they if there'd been um, a discovery of liquid water, you know, a few meters below beneath the surface, I would have been a lot more skeptical. Um, but again, you know, based on um, the discovery of subglacial lakes beneath, you know, the Antarctic ice cap, beneath Greenland, and actually, you know, more recently beneath the Devon ice cap um, in the Canadian high Arctic, you know, we do know that if you have uh, salty, uh, so salt-rich brines, that they can exist at well below the freezing point of water. And so, you know, uh, theoretically, um, I don't, I don't have any problem with uh, this potentially being uh, in existence. Um, and then, you know, we do know now from uh, campaigns to look at these uh, subglacial lakes, particularly under Antarctica, that you know they do host life. They're very extreme environments, um, but there are, um, you know, extremophile organisms that uh, have adapted to survive at such depths and such temperatures and such salinities on Earth. And so that definitely opens the door to, you know, potential uh, extant or present day life under the surface of Mars. Now, I'm going to get you to put your uh, planetary protection hat on. Uh, if there is the possibility of microbial life on Mars, what would that mean for a future human uh, mission to the planet? I mean, it does. It, it raises interesting um, questions for future potential human missions. Um, but of course, uh, you know, we 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 are looking at you know multi kilometer. Well, one and a half kilometers beneath the Martian surface. So that's not a region that humans will remotely be able to touch within any of our lifetimes. Um, you know, already there's been a lot of work in the planetary protection community and a lot of work and discussion about gullies and so-called RSLs or these re re recurring slope linear as being potential areas where there has been recent uh, water flow and so you know I don't know what the current uh, status quo is but uh, there's a lot of discussion about keeping humans away from those regions already um, because of the possibility for you know present day or, or recent life um, so I, I don't think this discovery of you know subpolar ice cap lakes really drastically changes that um, you know, it's not like we could sink a kilometer and a half drill core to access that liquid water. I think for humans, you know, what we'll be looking for to sustain human presence on, on Mars is accessing currently frozen H2O in the, you know, the upper five or 10 meters of the surface. 
While the poles may, uh, while the poles contain ice water, um, it's unlikely that humans will visit those areas on the first few missions. So, uh, and from what I understand, will likely cl- uh, probably stay closer to uh, the equator. Um, so, where would be a good location for astronauts to visit on the first few missions, where they might find uh, some evidence of water? Yeah, so you know, that's a good question. The poles are, you know, hostile and, and difficult to, to get to for various reasons to land and then to survive. Um, you know, the, the equator is one of the best locations to land, but um, for in terms of heat resources for for H two O, those are not uh, a good. In, that's not a good environment either. Um, so a lot of focus has been on the so-called mid latitudes. So between about 30 and 60 degrees latitude on Mars, um, I mean, going back to the Viking days in the 1970s, um, we've built up uh, a range of evidence now for the presence of past and likely present uh, subsurface ice. And so um, we have, again, going back to the the landform evidence for flowing water, uh, when you walk around on Devon Island at the present day in the Canadian Arctic, there's a lot of landforms that are indicative and form from freeze-thaw processes and uh, form due to the presence of ground ice. So, you know, ice in the upper 5, 10 meters uh, beneath the present-day surface. And, you know, that that's in, you know, within the realms of us accessing, whether it's through excavation or drilling. And so in, in that mid-latitude region down to you know, 35, 40, 45 degrees latitude on Mars. Um, there's a variety of what we call geomorphological evidence, so landform evidence. Um, we, of course, have the Phoenix lander uh, that, you know, made the, the amazing discovery of ice very close to the surface in uh, those mid-latitudes uh, towards the high margin of the mid-latitudes. And then there's been some, you know, very serendipitous discoveries in the last uh, number of years now, again from high-rise, in the form of these uh, very small impact craters that have been excavating uh, what we think is ice. And so, yeah, we, we think there are quite large reservoirs, exactly how big, how deep, and how spatially extensive, that remains to be seen. Um, but definitely, you know, in this band, uh, across the northern plains of Mars, um, and then in a few locations in the southern hemisphere and the big impact basins, uh, we do think there are substantial reserves of, yeah, again, near-surface ice that could be accessed by human missions. So just out of curiosity, would the, I, I think it would be pronounced the Bacalar Crater uh, in Utopia, it, would that be someplace that might be of interest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that's getting to be at the, you know, closer to the polar regions than the middle latitudes. Um, but that, that is one location. And, and in fact, you know, uh, most of Utopia Planitia, uh, Arcadia Planitia is another big one of these northern plains. You know, these are vast. They're thousands of kilometers across. And, um, you know, if what we suspect is correct, there are, you know, literally, um, you know, some... Uh, press releases have likened some of these potential deposits to, you know, Lake Superior size uh, deposits of, of ice beneath the surface. And so we're not talking small regions or small deposits. Um, and we think they're fairly continuous. 
across many regions of the mid-latitudes of uh, these northern plains of Mars. And when you say below the surface, how far below the surface would that be? Ah, so there you've hit on one of the big outstanding questions. Um, we don't really know. You know, the really the best ground truth we have is from the single point of the Phoenix uh, lander. Um, but that was, you know, a, um, a fairly high latitude. Um, the these ice excavating craters, you can do, you know, back of the envelope calculations, and you know, we can say a few meters, 10, 20 meters depth. Um, using again comparative planetology, you know, looking at landforms, um, we can say, you know, a few meters. Um, but this is where uh, we actually do need. Um, uh, and there is a call for a, a new radar instrument to be sent to Mars. Um, there has been studies done by the Mars Exploration Program Analysis Group, or MEPAG. And, uh, you know, a, a radar instrument with shallower, sorry, a shorter wavelength than either Marsis or Sharad that can that has the resolution to look at the upper you know let's say 10 to 100 meters is definitely is definitely what we need to answer that question more fully and do we have a drilling capability to actually uh reach uh let's say that uh that depth uh that would actually work on mars today so you know we we haven't drilled beneath the surface of Mars yet, you know, besides a few centimeters on Curiosity. Uh, of course, ExoMars uh, has the first, uh, you know, deep in, in quotation marks there drill. And, you know, I think their goal is a couple of meters. Um, I think, you know, right now I would suspect that some of those ground ice bodies are at, uh, you know, slightly deeper depths than that, you know, maybe five or 10 meters is perhaps where that golden region is. Now, um, I remember uh, when I was up in the Arctic at Houghton Crater uh, that uh, it was a group from NASA that was doing some drilling. Do you have any idea how how, how deep they were able to get? <clears throat> yeah, so I was actually just about to say that, um, yeah, kind of out of NASA Ames and I think Honeywell Robotics have been developing, you know, five to ten meter drilling capabilities for Mars. Um I would add, though, that, you know, the current, you know, that those technologies have been developed in the framework of robotic missions. In a way, you know, it's much, we have a lot more capability to go deeper and over bigger areas with humans in the loop. And, you know, um, it's the difference between deep mining versus open pit mining. You know, if you had uh, a human mission there with, uh, you know, tools and uh, machinery that could excavate off the overburden and then access the ice, you know, uh, that would get much uh, bigger volumes of ice much quicker and likely much easier than, uh, you know, peppering the surface with uh, with drill cores robotically. So that's not going to happen on the first mission, but maybe nope. down the road. <laughs> um, which, which brings up another interesting question, which is the uh, human versus robotic exploration of Mars. There's no question that the robotic exploration of Mars has provided us with an incredible uh, array of data that has changed our perception of the planet and uh, increased our knowledge. But when it comes to things like finding microbial life, uh, and you know, and as you say, doing some serious drilling. Um, 
will there ever be a robotic mission that could actually find microbial life? Or, or really, do you need, uh, you know, uh, astronauts on the ground to actually to do those kinds of uh, research? I mean, that's a great question. And I think there's probably a two-part answer. Um, you know, with the current, you know, Curiosity is, you know, it's called the Mars Science Laboratory and it has an incredible array of instruments, um, you know, designed looking at habitability as opposed to life detection. You know, life detection is hard enough to do in a lab on Earth, let alone uh, robotically on, uh, you know, a planet many thousands of kilometers away. And so, um, the the idea is that we, we need samples. We need to bring back samples to Earth. And so then we have this two-stage approach uh, that I think we need to follow, which is, uh, you know, first uh, to return samples robotically. And so Mars sample return uh, is the next uh, big thing that's been talked about for Mars exploration for, you know, decades now. And we're hopefully getting one step closer. Um, and But, you know, with that mission, we'll be looking at very small samples collected with robots with limited mobility. Um, and, you know, limited ability to collect from deep subsurface environments, which are likely uh, the, the highest uh, priority environments. And so, you know, that will be a first step. Um, maybe we'll return samples that contain, you know, good evidence for life. Uh, but I, I do think it, it may take humans to, you know, spend the months and even years documenting the environments, learning about the environments, and then eventually bringing those uh, samples back to our Earth-based laboratories. So Canada is interested in being part of the future, uh, being part of a future robotic mission to Mars. And recently, the Canadian Space Agency posted an announcement of opportunity for an instrument on NASA-led discovery mission to Mars. The instrument would be a synthetic aperture radar, uh, which would be used for mapping water ice in the Martian subsurface. How would that radar compare to the one that's on Mars Express at the moment? Yeah, and so this uh, you know is, is an exciting opportunity, um, and we've actually been uh, I'm involved in the project team that has been developing right now a concept uh, for such a, a Mars radar instrument. Um, although I would add that you know uh, that the the idea of sending a, a Canadian radar to Mars is not new. And in fact, you know, I, I learned about this during my PhD days uh, when I first came to Canada, you know, close to 20 years ago. Um, you know, we have uh, a lot of experience for the course of the radar sat series of satellites. And we have a lot of experience working in cold uh, climates in Canada, too. And so um, this recent announcement is actually uh, precedes uh, an earlier uh, study that was funded by the Canadian Space Agency, with MDA being the prime contractor, and then uh, uh, Weston um, and myself kind of leading a science team. And so we do have a concept for a radar instrument. And the key difference is that this is at a much shorter wavelength than Marsis and even Sherad. And the target for this instrument was to image exactly this region that we're not quite sure about. And so the upper, you know, 10 to 20 meters, which um, we have a lot of science questions about. But of course, you know, that's also the region that uh, we could potentially access uh, and would need to access for human missions. And uh, should it fly, 
Um, how long do you th- how long do you think it would be operating, and would it cover the whole planet, or would it just uh, stick to uh, getting data from certain latitudes? Uh, you know, it's a, almost an impossible question to answer. Um, you know, you can look at the Mars Exploration Rovers that had a nominal mission of 90 days and, you know, hopefully still ongoing in the case of opportunity. Uh, so, you know, in a, a nominal mission of a few months, um, we would definitely not be able to image uh, the entire surface. Um, but, you know, within a, we'd be looking at kind of um, hopefully uh, being able to image all the important regions. So again, uh, you know, the mid latitudes and uh, polar regions over approximately one Mars year. We do think that that is feasible. Um, And so, you know, uh, a little over two Earth years. Okay. And uh, a couple more questions. Um, So based on your experience, should a trained geologist be on the first human mission to Mars? Um, well, you're speaking to a geologist, so, you know, of course I'd say yes. Um, it, but then, you know, uh, in my um, some of my other uh, work, I've been helping to train, you know, not just Canadian, but U.S. astronauts in field geology. And so I do get into a bit of a discussion with myself about, you know, who, you know, we're going to have so limited number of seats uh, on that first mission. Um, I would like to think that a geologist should be among them. And, you know, we can point to uh, Harrison Schmidt and the success of having him along as a, you know, a career geologist um, on the Apollo missions, as opposed to having, you know, other astronauts that did an amazing job um, with what they learned of geology. But it's not quite the same thing as, um, you know, having a, a pilot trained in geology, just having, a, a, you know, someone with a geology background who's trained to be an astronaut. So, yeah, I definitely would like to think that a geologist would be on that first mission. And again, we can point to, I think, the success of Apollo uh, in making that case. Okay. So here's a fun question for you. You're still young enough to be able to do this. So do you have any aspirations to go to the moon? Oh, that is a fun question. Um, You know, I would love to. Um, You know, I have had, you know, the odd fun conversation uh, with my wife and and family about, uh, you know, whether be able to go into space of course whether you know there are potential opportunities as private astronauts coming up which is not something you know anyone would ever have thought about in the past um mars of course is a big uh, commitment but uh, i am and do a lot of work on uh, lunar geology and you know it's tantalizingly close you know there's a full full moon the other night and i was on a, a camping trip gazing up at it and uh, it would be pretty amazing to go up there and you know on a three days to get there and, you know, spend a few weeks and then come back. And uh, I would love to think that, you know, that's within the realm of possibility. Well, the moon certainly is closer. And we are definitely uh, closer to, I would say, going to the moon than to the than to Mars. Um, so definitely there's, there's going to be opportunities there. Okay, so my last question, which has nothing to do with what we've talked about, and which I try to ask uh, as many of my guests as I can. What books are you reading? And this might be a hard one for you to answer because I know you're really busy. Uh, So what books are you reading or have read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? And they don't have to be related to space. 
Hmm. That's a great question. Um, yeah, my first response is I don't have too much time on my uh, daily schedule to do reading these days. Um, but typically, yeah, when I do when I do read, um, it's uh, and the, the current book that I actually just picked up the other day is about a history of uh, the Mount Everest expeditions. And so, you know, I've always had a keen interest in exploration um, of the Earth. And so, you know, if you came to my house and looked at my bookshelf, there's there's definitely some you know space related books there um but there's quite a big collection of books on you know polar exploration both the canadian arctic and antarctica um and then uh, you know mountaineering because uh, you know in my free time what i typically try to be doing is out uh, rock climbing either indoors or outdoors and so uh, yeah i just actually you know last night I actually sat down and i read a book of uh, a bit of this book about the history of um you know the early uh, mount everest expeditions uh, and I'm also uh, guilty of reading uh, explorer books, expedition books, and I currently have been reading the United States-Japan uh, expedition uh, by Commodore Perry. Oh, uh, interesting. That uh, one that I have read. Yeah. And it's a uh, multi-volume <laughs> uh, report that was uh, put together for Congress in, I think it was 18... 18- late 1800s or something like that anyway it's uh it's it's actually fascinating because it's not just um the uh talking about the expedition but it includes all the um uh the hand drawings and the uh, uh, s- charts of the sky that they took every night hmm. for navigation anyway uh oz yeah as people know you by. Uh, thank you, Gordon, for being on the show. Hopefully we can get you on the show again in, uh, in the near future. Oh, it's been fun, Mark, and an absolute pleasure. And yeah, hope to talk again soon. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Queue. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.